This is the podcast of the Modern War Institute at West Point, an integrative look at war, policy, and leadership. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi of the Modern War Institute. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org. This week on the podcast, we're talking to Eric Schmidt, New York Times reporter and author of Counter-Strike. If you enjoy the Modern War Institute podcast, please rate us on iTunes and comment at the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org. Eric Schmidt, welcome to the podcast. We're talking about articles that you've written recently about Libya and Boko Haram. In both of those cases, the U.S. response is sort of in the process of evolving, and both Libya and Boko Boko Haram as case studies seem to be evolving in similar ways, where we're moving into a more aggressive stance as far as deploying special operations troops and supporting local forces with air support, whether it's manned or unmanned, uh, armed or unarmed. Can you comment, based on talking to the people you have in writing these articles, about how that evolution is, is going and why it's happening that way? Sure, sure. And I think it you know, really dates back to the president's West Point speech, where he talks about this shift away from you know, large land wars in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where he had well over 100,000 U.S. troops on the ground, and how can we uh, help protect American interests, guarantee our interests, uh, without having to commit you know, large ground forces, A, that are now politically unpopular here at home, B, quite costly, and see, in some cases, are actually counterproductive, and that they uh, they just kind of feed into the uh, into the jihadist or terrorist narrative that these are occupying or invading forces, uh, and just provide grist for uh, their recruitment platforms. And so, I think you have two examples here. Um, you know, starting with Libya, of uh, going back, you know, to the campaign, the uh, the campaign the U.S. helped support. Uh, back in 2011 that ended up ousting uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And this was a, an example where the U.S. did not want to have a frontline role in terms of at least the fighter aircraft that you had, in, in this case, France and Britain, uh, two frontline European states uh, that were ready and eager to kind of take that role on. Obviously, it was it was kind of more in their geographic area and that and uh, but they still needed the support of the United States in, in very significant ways, whether it be in terms of intelligence support, uh, refueling support, uh, just transport in general, moving troops around, things like that. And then uh, when it came to kind of providing munitions, even in that case, um, you know, in, in, Lib- in Libya, you know, the whole idea was the U.S. would support this. And, of course, the famous anonymous quote leading from behind. Uh, you know, it gets to the situation where the, you know, the president and his top advisors here in Washington believe that they would support this effort and support the um, democratic forces on the ground that ultimately ousted Gaddafi. But then, really, the follow-on would be up to the Europeans, right. and um, and quite there's been quite a bit written about that since then. Now that ISIS has gained a uh, you know more you know a significant foothold in Libya, and now poses once again a uh, a new threat to kind of American interests in the region. The U.S. is having to examine how can they um, how can they try and go after that threat, defeat that threat, but without having to put again large forces on the ground. Um, and so, what they've been doing is on, on the one side, being along with their, their European allies, very aggressive in trying to support 
the political process of forming a unity government, they're basically bringing together the various factions, the two principal political factions, and then many of the warring militias on the ground that are fighting each other, kind of unify them politically and, and kind of unify these and rally the militias so that they're, instead of fighting each other, uh, will fight against these foreigners who come in, particularly around CERT and some other places, um, and, and go after them. And so the, 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 the tricky thing in Libya for the United States is um, not wanting to kind of repeat the mistake that they made arguably with ISIS as it developed in, in Syria and then swept into first into western Iraq and then down up, down through Mosul. Right. You know, just kind of basically leaving it up to the Iraqis to kind of deal with this with some fairly peripheral assistance. I mean, they really kind of took their eye off the ball there. Now there's plenty of warning that uh, the ISIS affiliate in, in Libya is um, is expanding, you know, by some Pentagon estimates between 5,000 and 6,500 fighters with no, not a lot of resistance, frankly, on the ground, since there really isn't an effective uh, government in which to back. And that's part of the problem here, is that the, the, uh, the U.S. and its European allies do not want to get too deeply into this militarily uh, without some type of, of government, or at least local forces, that they can, uh, that they can support. Uh, you know, in, their, in an ideal world, you'd, you'd have a unity government stand up, uh, they would request you, you know, Western assistance, including you know, from the U.S., and then you would probably have you know small numbers of special forces from U.S., Britain, France, Italy that would help train and advise uh, several of these militia groups and carry out attacks against ISIS. Uh, following what, what I reported this week would be kind of an opening barrage of airstrikes against a number of ISIS targets in Libya. Right. So you would have coalition air support, militia, ground forces working together, and all kind of knitted in this operation with um, with uh, with U.S. and other European advisors who've been in and out of the country over the past year trying to identify groups they could work with, do a little bit of vetting, maybe even anticipate what kind of uh, equipping they might need to have. Um, but... The, the, on the flip side of this is, you know, as this threat grows and if they don't get a government in place that they can go in behind, you know, there's, there is the option of having to go in unilaterally uh, or at least, you know, a Western response because the, the threat to the West is just too great. That's not certainly not the desired course of action because then you run the risk of having the Libyan people on the ground, the militias view the, view the coalition as the enemy. They're the ones who are bombing us. And, and certainly that would be a narrative that you can you can imagine ISIS would try to promote. Right. Uh, here, here we go once again, you know, yet another, you know, Western error campaign, bombing campaign. And it would feed into what's kind of a unique Libyan narrative that Qaddafi reinforced over 40 years in power is that um, a very strong sense of nationalism that, you know, you're Libyan people, you may be small in numbers and uh, but you, you know, great history and, you know, protect everything you can against these foreigners who want to ultimately have, you know, they have ulterior motives wanting to come and help us might want to take away our oil, other, other assets. So there's a, a real, a real strong desire to kind of avoid handing that kind of narrative to um, ISIS and other extremist groups in Libya. Um, but at the same time, not, 
letting this threat grow to a point where it's going to be, you know, really tough to tough to degrade if and when you, you have to do that. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the Lydia model. Well, um, I, I mean, I'm curious because it seems to me that the Libya model, the model you just described is being applied in very similar ways to very different contexts, depending on where you're talking about, whether it's Libya or Nigeria or Syria, or even in some cases, Pakistan, those are obviously very different contexts. Nigeria has a a fairly functioning government. Pakistan has a functioning government, Libya and Syria less so. But it seems from reporting I've seen recently that a lot of the same operational template is being used to combat each of those threats. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I think that's right. You've you've kind of laid out a nice uh, spectrum on which you can apply that that template. You've got you know countries like Pakistan, as you said, uh, or Nigeria that are you know more or less functioning you know governments, uh, you know in some cases quite prosperous ones, oil-rich Nigeria, for instance. Uh, but they still may need help in certain parts of their country in dealing with terrorist networks or insurgencies of some sort. And then you, you run down the spectrum to the other end of it, where we are today in places like Syria or Somalia. Uh, or Libya, where you have little or no functioning government, and, and what do you do there? Because it really is, you know, this model really hinges on having some type of partner you can work with on the ground. Um, and this, you know, you can take this all the way back to 2001 when U.S. helped, you know, in Afghanistan, um, in, in northern northern Afghanistan, as we went in there. Um, so each each situation is going to be a little bit different, and you know what you have to work with on the ground. The more fully functioning government you have to work with and their capabilities, you know, uh, the better it typically is. Right. Uh, you can work with those forces. Uh, each one of them brings its own you know its own issues and problems. I mean, Nigeria, for instance, um, it's only with this change of government, you know, last fall with President Buhari coming in, who was frankly much more receptive to American military assistance. Mm-hmm. The previous administration under uh, Good Luck Jonathan, you know, kind of mouthed the words, but really was not very interested in in uh, in that kind of aid, whether you call it pride or arrogance or whatever it was. Uh, it really wasn't until the, the kind of final throws of his presidential campaign when he realizes he's probably going to lose, uh, in, in large part because of what's going on with Boko Haram in the northeastern part of his country, that you know, he starts to make noises about, you know, you know, accepting, be more receptive to, to U.S. assistance. Um, but even even there, even in the Nigerian case, you have, you know, the largest the largest uh, army in that part of West Africa. But it's really hasn't been uh, over the last few years um, has not been well uh, resourced. Uh, morale is quite poor, particularly for the troops up in that part of uh, Nigeria, cycling them through. Uh, you know, there have been essentially mutinies in many cases because they felt they weren't uh, getting resource well enough. They'd be attacked. Uh, they didn't have enough ammunition, food, water, those kind of things. And so there have been some changes, you know, that have been fully, you know, supported by, you know, the U.S., by this new administration, Nigeria, to put more resources, you know, cha- you know basically a wholesale changes in the command structure up there, uh, moving the command uh, for the operation right up into uh, – Madugari, which is the main city up there in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, both politically, you know, and diplomatically rather, you know, from the United States and, you know, and from Britain, um, you know, you know, a lot of support for this for the new Bihari administration. 
on trying to, you know, deal with some of the root causes. You know, they created Boko Haram up there. It's obviously not a new movement. It's been around for over a dozen years, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So even if you, you know, even if you are more effective in dealing with the problem militarily, you still need to think about, you know, how are you going to, you know, address some of the, the problem, the economic problems, education, other you know, other opportunities that you have on the ground that haven't really been addressed. And so now you have the U.S., you know, trying to kind of put together, as they try and do in these, in all these instances, in all these countries, it's not just kind of a military solution, but thinking, thinking more holistically of, you know, what kind of aid program will we have, what kind of diplomatic initiatives can we help this government with? Because otherwise it's just going to be very short term. You can go in and bomb an enemy or, or, you know, help, help them conduct raids. But, you know, if that doesn't deal with the underlying problems, these, these threats are just going to, you know, return and, you know, they'll morph or they'll turn and they'll ally with some other outside force. Like we're seeing in Boko Haram align itself with, uh, with ISIS more closely. Um, and so, um, so these are all kind of things that, uh, the U S and its allies are working in, in that part of Africa, for instance, you know, have to, uh, have to deal with. From what you're seeing using this template, have we sort of learned our lesson about the importance of uh, a coherent civil military strategy where both are important to influencing the outcome in these countries? Yes and no. I think, uh, and certainly intellectually, I think that's the case. There have been plenty of books written about it. You've got government officials now who've grown up over the last 15 years, kind of this is you know, whether it's been in foreign policy or national security circles in this part, you, you kind of know this inherently. And yet it's still, you still have problems, for instance, in the financing of these two different things. It's much easier, for instance, to get Congress to approve uh, forces for special operations forces, uh, for more munitions, uh, basically for the military in general than it is for USAID uh, or other diplomatic initiatives, things that take much longer, sometimes are much harder to see, sometimes harder to measure. Um, and, and so even though they cost a lot less, uh, it's, it, it's very frustrating, I think, even for, um, for people increasing the DOD side. You know, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates was famous for saying, you know, he wanted to share as much of his wealth as he could with the State Department because he, re- he recognized that, you know, if he could help promote some of their programs, it would, you know, perhaps head off the need to use military force in some of these kind of countries. You know, I, I think it's getting better. And um, and I think over time, you just you can't help as more and more officials have had experience in, in this and they kind of learn. But um, but still, you, you kind of get frustrated because you look at some of this and it, it appears it's like we're, it's kind of like we're having to learn, relearn these lessons through every each can Well, that that was going to be that was going to be my next question was you talked you mentioned that in theory, we seem to understand conceptually that that this is important. I was curious what if in practice, we're seeing that actually used as part of this this operational template, or if it's something that's still being neglected in the practical sphere? Well, in the in the well, the problem is sometimes it it looks like you've gotten off to a good start in a tough place. And then something falls apart. If you look at Libya, for instance, even, you know, post Gaddafi, the initial signs were pretty good. You know, it's the, they had elections, you know, they were, we were starting to have an aid program again there. You had an embassy running and then, um, and then 
you know, the security situation starts to go south, but they didn't manage the militias right. And pretty soon, you know, the security problem starts overwhelming the aid uh, and development programs. And you just, you're not going to get aid workers going out in places where it's dangerous. And then when the security finally just collapses, you know, and kind of Benghazi is, becomes the symbol of, uh, of the U.S. and the Western presence right. in Libya, you know, the whole thing kind of devolves. And same thing, and in, 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 you know, embassies pull out, and you basically have this civil conflict. Same thing in Yemen. You had a, you had a, and the Arab Spring result of removing a dictator there, uh, of Saleh, you know, with a guy, Hadi, who seemed to be much more in tune with, you know, uh, uh, working with the West in a, in a pragmatic way. You had both, uh, it seemed to be a balanced, approach of, of military training going on, helping the Yemeni security forces train at the same time you had uh, not just U.S., but other Western uh, assistance organizations coming in and, you know, helping this incredibly impoverished country. And yet, and then, but it's it's so fragile. All the institutions are so fragile. It doesn't take much so that when you have the, you know, the, you know, the things kick off with the Houthi and you have, and they kind of run south, the government collapses, and pretty soon Yemen is where we are today. And we've got a, a big story that's going to run probably early next okay. week about you know what's happened in the last year in Yemen. So part of the problem is many of these countries they just don't have the kind of enduring and durable institutions that are able to survive these jolts. Uh, you know, they come uh, as we've seen with, with a security downturn or, or something else that doesn't work. They don't have democratic, and I say that, you know, small d democratic traditions, even representative traditions of representative government, what we're learning, and you may have read my colleagues' two-part series on on Libya that they did just last week, you know, the Qaddafi essentially robbed, you know, two generations of Libyans of any kind of alternative form of governance. I mean, they're just, so he's gone, then what? It's like nobody had any experience. What do you, you know, how are we going to run this country other than just kind of reverting back to these kind of tribal, uh, you know, militia-type arrangements and, you know, people banding together just to survive in these countries. Um, but it's a very sobering, I think, time for, for policymakers to go through this, thinking, you know, it's we've tried to impose, you know, an American solution on places like Iraq and Afghanistan. That hasn't helped. Ultimately, you pull out. You've tried a light footprint, mm-hmm. as we did in Yemen and in, in, in Libya, and that, that didn't really work out. So I think where we are now in this kind of yeah. arc, if you will, is trying to find some kind of hybrid. Um, at least this is the Obama doctrine, if you will. We'll see what the next president brings in uh, of really trying to identify what is in the, the no kidding American interest, national interest. You know, what are we willing to think a you know a fair amount of blood and treasure for? And then what's the next ring out? What will we what will we do to help support indigenous security forces? How, how can we help? support, you know, regional partners, um, as we're seeing more, or, or, or allies who have more of a stake in the region, as we see with the French in West Africa, um, or in the case of Yemen, you know, backing this kind of ill-fated war that the Saudis, you know, launched without really thinking it through. Um, these are all the kind of the, the birthing pains of this new type of policy as we're kind of going forward um, and, and having to kind of you know, learn along the way. Um, and, and how this thing, how these kind of arrangements will work in the future. That's a nice segue back into the broader focus question I had next. It seems like what you just talked about and called the Obama doctrine, the combination of a more robust civil engagement, 
proxy support as well as aerial support, that model is being applied, like we talked about earlier, in a lot of different contexts. So does that mean that it's considered effective or are we still trying to determine how effective this method is? You know, I, I think rather than experimental, I, I would say evolutionary. I mean, I think you've gone from kind of one one kind of premise that you, you have to go in big. That was the idea of you know, going in big to destroy Al-Qaeda or to destroy what you thought were, you know, threat from chemical, you know, from weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to something much more limited. Um, it's, and that's both dictated by, you know, from the financial pressures of just not having the money to pay for these things anymore, as well as the political exhaustion of just not, you know, Donald Trump notwithstanding of putting willing to put 20 or 30,000 more right. troops on the ground in one of these conflicts. It's just, you know, the political support just isn't there for these kind of things. And so I think, you know, people are looking and, and, and trying to kind of take measure of, okay, we certainly don't want to go back to that high-end model. Uh, but on the low end, it looks like maybe we should, you know, maybe we need to do a little bit more of that. Um, but, but, you know, there, there is, you know, I think there is, you know, probably a little bit more, uh, way, you know, a way of trying to anticipate some of these, some of these issues, um, you know, through intelligence. I mean, you know, you just can't, I mean, the Obama administration on Iraq, for instance, just, they, you know, 2011, we didn't get the SOFA agreement. So they just basically said, okay, we're out of there. You know, we're going to pull out, we'll have an embassy there, but we're just not going to have any kind of residual military force, despite, you know, the, the strong recommendations and part of senior military leaders, that, that would be a good idea just to kind of nothing else to have more eyes and ears on the ground. Um, you know, so maybe there's this sense that, okay, you have to have in some of these enduring conflicts, you're going to have to have, you know, a more, you know, robust enduring force, small, but still enduring. I think we're seeing that evolution, you know, right now in Afghanistan, the president initially was going to go down to just an embassy force of about a thousand people. Now we're looking at a situation where we're at just under 10,000 with a glide path to maybe 5,500. But I bet you a lot of money that that number is not going to happen. I mean, I think in the end, they're going to recognize they don't want to repeat the mistakes they made in Iraq, and they'll probably stay, if not at right around where they are now, maybe just a few, maybe a few mm -hmm. thousand, you know, less than that. But, you know, the idea that you still need, and this is with a, this is with a government that wants you there. The Ghani government is very supportive, unlike the Maliki government in Iraq, which wanted us out anyway, so that kind of made it easier politically. So I think you're going to look at that. And then, you know, the, the whole ISIS, at least, you know, ISIS equation right now, I think is what's dictating, you know, our levels of assistance in a lot of other, in these other places. This is, ISIS has replaced Al-Qaeda as the, kind of the most serious terrorist threat, you know, outside, uh, you know, external terrorist threat to the United States. And so it's kind of, how do we, how do we combat that? You know, it has to be done in a coalition form. It has to be done much more smartly than it has been to now, not just militarily, but you know, thinking through the social media aspects of how they, they're so much more sophisticated than Al-Qaeda ever was using, uh, using social media, you know, propagate their, their vision to recruit, to uh, do all sorts of other things. And so, you know, I think those are the kind of things. And then, and then you just have to kind of recognize that, you know, despite all the, the best planning you have, a lot of it is right. just, you know, kind of out of our hands, frankly. I mean, you know, looking at Arab Spring, I mean, we can't be so arrogant as to think you know, the U.S. can come in and kind of sort out 
what are ultimately the, the, the destinies of these of these Arab countries. You know, it's ultimately up to them how they sort it out. Um, you know, but we can be we can be smarter in thinking how we how we support that. Um, and so that's and that's hard. I think it's just because it's just a different it's a different vision. I think of kind of foreign policy. It's a different vision, kind of national security, and how you kind of you know both pursue American uh, national interests, but but understanding what's going right. to what's going to play effectively on the ground in these in these countries in these regions. And, uh, and you would, you know, even even if we, as we've developed a much, you know, a much broader array of expertise in our State Department and military and others, uh, you know, it's still, you know, we're still outsiders in these regions, and it's, you know, it's it's kind of hard to expect that, you know, we're going to be able to come in and kind of define, you know, their their futures for them. So that's, you know, that's the other kind of stark lesson of the of the Arab Spring is that you just don't have a whole lot of control over this stuff. You have, you're having to force to manage these things that are happening very quick. Things are, the events are very fluid. Um, and, um, and, and this hasn't, you know, we just don't have much experience in how we deal with this. So it is going to be, I think moving forward, you know, it's going to be ragged, you know, and how you, how you approach this. And it will be, you know, there'll be fits and starts, you know, and how uh, how things how things look, and so. So it, I know it's difficult to speculate, but given the evolutionary nature of this sort of framework that we're talking about, what is sort of the next logical step in that evolution? Well, I think um, on the one hand, I think you know it's it's probably much less likely that that you and your classmates are going to be you know deployed to these kind of contingencies. Uh, just because the, the numbers are so much smaller than they were. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, you just were guaranteed you were going to spend one or two tours in Afghanistan or Iraq just by the sheer demand. Now, um, you know, I think, it, you know, obviously at least this administration has put such a premium on special operations forces that that community has really been worn thin. Um, and so we'll kind of see what happens if, uh, for instance, if, if the military leadership decides, you know, in order to give those guys a break, they, they expand out some of those responsibilities and duties more to the conventional forces, right? You know, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see how that works. I mean, I think it, it, it underscores more than ever, um, still the need to have, you know, very, um, you know, flexible, fluid and nimble thinkers when it comes to a, you know, the next generation of, of military officers and diplomats and, uh, and you can't really be rooted in any one kind of orthodoxy. You've got to be you've got to be ready to pivot and and respond to changes. And since so much of what we're seeing now, particularly on the terrorism front, is being dictated by you know these impulses on on social media, it's uh, it's just uh, it's really tough to kind of uh, anticipate kind of what the next step is. And so you have to kind of be, I think, really supple in your thinking. And, and, and be prepared to kind of go in, in many different directions. But, but coming back to some fairly core principles, and we talked about this in a book that my colleague Tom Shanker and I wrote, you know, four or five years ago now, Counter-Strike, you know, it, at least in attacking terrorism, and I think this is dealing with many of the problems, it has to be a holistic approach, you know, using all functions of not just, you know, U.S. national power, but, you know, international coalitions. And um, I think in this campaign against ISIS, you know, the, 
the international coalition was a little bit slow to kind of get the band back together again. I mean, they they were they were humming along pretty well in, in driving Al Qaeda into the ground in Pakistan. I think people got a little bit complacent, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, twenty early late twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen, that maybe we could, you know, we could put that problem to rest, and you know, things were looking pretty good. Um, you know, at least on the Al Qaeda front, yes, there were still challenges in Iraq and Afghanistan, but maybe you know there were optimistic signs, and you know, out of those kind of ashes bursts uh, ISIS, which is a much more formidable uh, threat that's got the ability to uh, you know encourage actors outside of its you know uh, core areas uh, to, to take action on their own and uh, or to uh, inspire affiliates to kind of rebrand themselves under the ISIS name. So. So there's, you know, whether it's in the military community or intelligence community, um, I think, you know, we have to just uh, be much more prepared to deal with these kind of ever-shifting type of threats. And then the, uh, you know, as we see with, with Russia, kind of resurgence of the, of the classic kind of nation-state threat. Um, and how do you kind of, on the one hand, allocate resources and, and intellectual capital toward addressing that? Um and, and, you know, obviously still an existential threat that, that Russia poses with its nuclear arsenal, uh, but still having to deal with, um, you know, the, the terrorist type of threat that we've been dealing with now for 15 years and thought we'd been pretty good at it and getting after. So that's that's kind of the other challenge is kind of toggling between those those two very kind of different problem sets. Well, great. I think that's a good place to stop. Um I appreciate you taking the taking the time okay. to talk to us and look forward to reading the Yemen article coming up. Okay, great. Good luck with your um, good luck with your podcast. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at modernwarinstitute.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not reflect the official position of the United States government. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi, and I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth conversations on war, policy, and leadership.